You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Jacques Cousteau once said, The sea, once it casts its spell, holds one in its net of wonder forever. And it's true, the sea is at once mysterious and graceful, like another planet below the waves. And although we don't know yet if life exists beyond the stars, there is a rich ecosystem of plants and animals waiting for us beneath the water's surface. Or, of course, sometimes the fish don't like to wait. Once in a while, they come up to see us for themselves. Like what happened in the Baltic Sea in the mid-1400s. According to the story, a particular fish had been captured and brought to the king of Poland, Sigismund I. Sigismund was fascinated by the creature, and he decided to keep it. The fish was described as being large, larger than any fish anyone had ever seen before, with scales all over its midsection and flippers like a man's hands. Its pointed head resembled a mitre, or the headdress donned by bishops in the church, earning it the nickname the bishop fish. A wild animal, however, had no interest in living with the king. It longed to return to the open water where it belonged. No one quite knows how it happened, but a small group of Roman Catholic bishops managed to meet with the fish. Any records that existed regarding their interactions have been lost, or are maybe stored deep within the Vatican archives. However, even without the official written account, one thing is clear. The bishop fish did not want to be there. In fact, it said as much— in a way only a fish could. It may have been how it flapped its flipper hands or splashed the men with water. Whatever it did, it inspired them to go to the king and plead for the creature's release back into the wild. Sigismund, though, was unsure. After all, how could a fish, even one as strange as the bishop fish, tell them it wanted to go home? But after some time, he agreed to set it free. The bishops carried it to the sea and released it into the water. Now, most animals don't thank their captors when they're released. They run or swim as fast as they can away from the perceived danger. But the bishop fish didn't do that. Instead, it turned around and made the sign of the cross to the men before it disappeared into the water. Almost a century later, another bishop fish was caught in the waters off the coast of Germany. It was offered food by the sailors who had captured it, but it wouldn't eat. They kept it for three days, hoping to coax it into eating something— Sadly, its protests ended up costing it its life, and it died in captivity. Its captors then placed its body back in the sea where they had found it. Around the time as the second bishop fish sighting, another bizarre fish was caught, this time in the sound between Denmark and Sweden. The creature was depicted in a 16th century illustration as being half fish, half man. 
One academic at the time, Guillaume Rondelet, described it as both a fish in a monk's habit and a merman, giving it the name the sea monk or monkfish. Its face looked more human than that of the bishop fish, too. His observations were based on artist renderings of the creature that had made its way from the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to France's Queen Marguerite of Navarre, who had, in turn, gifted it to Rondelet. A gift from such a prominent member of the French royalty was to be taken as confirmation that the drawing was authentic. And although Rondelet was incorrect about such details as where the sea monk had been captured, the story behind his sketch only added to its mythos. French naturalist Pierre Bellon elaborated on the history of the sea monk with ancient tales of other myrrh creatures, such as sirens and tritons. He wasn't so quick to dismiss Rondelet's opinions as wild speculation, although many others were. Since then, scientists and scholars have attempted to ground the sea monk in reality by making educated guesses as to the creature's true identity. One zoologist in the 1800s proposed the idea that it had really been a giant squid, and not some fish-man hybrid. Today, marine biologists believe what Rondelet and the sailors had seen was actually an angel shark, also known as the monkfish. Whatever it was, it's clear that the sea continues to present us with more questions than answers and it will always leave us feeling just a little curious. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. A new invention doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Years of research and development go into the creation of a brand new product. In his many attempts to find the perfect filament for his incandescent light bulb, Thomas Edison famously said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. The inventors of the typewriter might have said the same thing. Today's modern computers can trace their roots all the way back to the mid-16th century, when an Italian printmaker named Francesco Rampazzetto wanted an easier way to press letters into paper. Gutenberg's printing press was a massive machine that took time to set up and maintain. Rampazzetto's invention would have simplified the process. Unfortunately, there is no evidence he ever built one. Over 100 years later, Henry Mill in England carried the baton a little closer to the finish line. He actually built his version of an automatic typing machine and was issued a patent for it. Over the coming decades, other inventors and engineers came up with their own designs on the typewriter. Augustino Fantoni built one in 1802 so his blind sister could be able to write, and William Austin Burt's 1829 concept was so cumbersome and slow to use, most people who tried it chose to write by hand instead. It wasn't until 1868 when an early version of the typewriter as we know it today made its debut. Its creation was the work of Wisconsin residents Christopher Scholes, Frank Hall, Carlos Glidden, and Samuel Soule. Scholes had come to Milwaukee to take a position as the editor of a local newspaper. His job was soon made harder by a strike at the printing press, so he started investigating a workaround. However, after one failed prototype of an automatic typesetting machine, he pivoted to building a smaller, simpler device. Rather than making newspaper printing easier, Scholes focused on books. Well, one specific part of books, the page numbers. He wanted to make a machine that would stamp a number on anything made of paper. So he took his plans to Kleinstuber Machine Shop, where he and Samuel Soule began working on it. Once they had a working model, the men demonstrated it to Carlos Glidden, another inventor at the shop who was in the midst of developing a mechanical plow. Glidden was intrigued by the numbering machine and its possibilities. He asked if it could do more than stamp numbers onto a page. Could it also make letters? Scholes set to work along with Sol. Glidden provided them with the funding they needed, earning a spot on the project as a third partner. The men built the frame for their prototype out of wood, the letters and numbers were arranged in two rows resembling a piano, with the first row of even numbers 2 through 8 and the letters A through M made of ivory. The second row was made of ebony and included the odd numbers 3 through 9 along with the letters N through Z. 
The numbers 1 and 0 were left out, as they could easily be replaced by the letters I and O, respectively. The patents for Scholl's typewriting machine, or typewriter as he called it, were issued in June and July of 1868, and the device worked beautifully. Scholl's, also the city's comptroller, used it to draft an official contract as part of his duties. It was the first document ever typed on a typewriter. His contemporaries were more mixed in their reviews, though. A Pennsylvania businessman named James Densmore bought a quarter of the patent sight unseen after receiving a letter from Scholl's that had been typed using the device. After finally testing one for himself, though, Densmore told them that it was useless. If they wanted to sell it commercially, they had to make it better. Stenographer James Clepane also found flaws with the device. For one, it couldn't stand up to the intense punishment doled out by his furious fingers. He worked them so hard he destroyed several keys during his tests. The opinions of people like Densmore and Clepane were discouraging, but Scholes kept at it. In fact, their observations had shed light on another flaw of the original design, the key layout. While an alphabetical arrangement made sense at first, fast typists found that the keys would jam when common letter combinations were typed in rapid succession. So Scholes went back to the drawing board trying all kinds of different letter pairings to see what worked best. In one layout, the numbers were moved to a new top row, with the vowels directly beneath them. The remaining consonants were split across two more rows below them. For five years, Scholes toiled over the arrangement of his letters. However, it was with the help of James Densmore's brother, Amos, when he finally figured it out. Amos had done research into bigram frequency, or how often two letters appeared together in words. By the end of their collaboration, Scholes and Densmore had found the perfect way to lay out the keys for letters, numbers, and symbols. In 1873, the manufacturing rights to the Scholes and Glidden typewriter were sold to the rifle company, E. Remington & Sons. They tweaked the key arrangement by repositioning just a few of the characters, resulting in a wholly unique layout named for the first five letters in the second row. Q, W, E, R, T, and Y. We still use this layout today, nearly 150 years later. It can be seen on everything from computer keyboards to tablets, right down to the smartphones in our pockets. Though today, we call this unalphabetic arrangement of letters by a far simpler name. The QWERTY keyboard. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.